Blog Talk Radio. book. I mean, I can't wait to finish it because it is so good. 
so what made you decide to go ahead? Because I know you had called it um, something different at one point, didn't you? Oh, yeah. <laughs> do, you, do you know how they do books now? Uh, the author and the publisher no longer title books, nor do they have anything to do with the cover. Oh, they don't? Neither one. Oh, okay. What controls that now is the marketing department at Borders and, and Barnes and & Noble. They decide what manuscripts are selected. They decide what the title will be. And they decide what the cover will be based on their marketing expertise. Hmm, I didn't know that. So my cover was originally very different. The title was originally very different. And that all got turned around by Borders and Barnes and & Noble. Well, I do, I got to say, I do like this, the, the title a lot better, though. <laughs> Well, you know, the, the title is good. I just wish they had not put the secondary title, which is called The Ultimate Guide to What Happens When We Die. This is not true. It's about the near-death phenomenon, and it's an ultimate guide to um, what can happen on the edge of death. Uh, so so in that sense, it's, it's true. But... Um, the secondary title is a little misleading, but again, an author anymore has no say. So it's all up to the marketing. They think yep. they know what's best. Yes, well, they picked a, a cover that would sell, and, and it has sold pretty well. And I, I'm telling everybody, please, if you don't want to get it for yourself, get it for your doctor, get it for your hospital, get it for your clinic, yes. get it for your school. Get these books out into people's hands. Because everything you need to know, whether you be a minister, whether you be a chaplain, whether you be a nurse, whether you be a doctor, whether you be an educator, uh, whether you be a child, whether you be an adult, a parent, everything you need to know is in there. Yes, um, just amazing. And I was telling um, my other half has um, a home health nurse that comes in every week, and they also have work with hospice. And I was telling her about it, and she's like, "Oh, that sounds interesting." Yeah, yeah, it's, it's you know, there's a chapter in there just for medical people, so a lot of your protocols are in there. Um, it, it's just, it's a book for everybody. You know, even little kids like it. <laughs> yeah, because it is with the cartoons. It has some little cartoon graphics and all in there, and it, it is interesting for people. All of those cartoons, but two, were drawn by Native American. That is nice, though. I think that's just very, very nice. Yes. I, I really, he's, um, what's his name? Spirit, Spirit, Spirit. Well, it, it, will, it will say, it will say in the book, right? Now, oh, here it is, Spirit Painter. Spirit Painter did them. I'm not sure what nation he belongs to, but he did the, all but two of the cartoons. And I and, and I just think he did a tremendous job. Yes, very, really good because um, you know, it does help you to understand what is being written too, because it gives you the visual also. Yeah, yeah, you 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 got a lot of visuals here. <laughs> yes, which does help, especially when you're talking about how what little children um, would see. Like there's one on page thirty-one. Um, uh, talking about the human appearance of a face. And we're, I guess it was uh, talking about the devil and saying that they were bad and all. And well, that's what the little boys saw. Yes. Now, now, 
that gives you two different versions of the same experience, the one that was drawn right after it happened, which is the top one. Yes. And then the one that was drawn a couple of years later. Yeah, as he got older and all was able to redraw yeah. stuff and all. So it's it's interesting. You know, the graphics and uh watching you know, that's what I like looking to the to see what the drawings are about and just how it relates to it and you can see and you can actually uh picture it yourself. Right. Right. And and it gives you an opportunity to see what the experiencer themselves actually saw and um experience. So it's you know, it's really valuable for that. You know, when we're talking about the near death experience, I think it would be helpful first of all to identify or at least try to identify what a near death experience is. And then I would like to make an an announcement to your listening audience. Sure. Uh you know, no one can really fully accurately define a near death experience because you know one doctor will have one definition uh a group of people will have another definition uh but what comes to us from the international association for near death studies which i think is the most accurate they identify a near death they say a near death experience is an intense awareness sense or experience of otherworldliness whether pleasant or unpleasant that happens to people who are at the edge of death. It is of such magnitude that most experiencers are deeply affected, many to the point of making significant changes in their lives afterward because of what they went through. And I, th- I think that that's the best definition I've come across. And they have classifications. Um, they have a, like a checklist. Uh, don't they? Did I, was I reading that someplace? Do they have like a checklist for anyone to see if they actually did have a near-death experience? Well, th- that checklist, which is sometimes called the classical model, is, is subject to question. I give that uh, checklist in the book so that you can see what the classical model originally looked like. And then as you go on in the book, I challenge the model because the model really doesn't hold up. The the model is something like, uh, you know, you're going out of your body. Um, there's this idea of the wind going by or noise, like like you're going by real quickly. Um, go into and through a tunnel and into another world. You're greeted by loved ones who died and gone on before you or angels or some kind of otherworldly beings. You can stay, have a dialogue. Um, there can be a scenario of some kind, and then you're told it's not your time, and you come back, or you have a choice, and then you backtrack. Well, number one, not that many people experience a tunnel. Never did. So this idea about the near-death experience, having a tunnel, uh, or people going through a tunnel, is really a myth. There are people who do uh, experience a tunnel, both adults and children, but there aren't that many. You know, w- we have this idea that the near-death experience, you, you, you have an out-of-body experience, you go through a tunnel, you go to a light at the end of the tunnel, and there's your loved ones or an angel or, or whatever. And this simply is not true. There's lots of different elements that can be in this scenario. 
there's lots of different ways a person can experience uh, the near-death phenomenon. Uh, of the various elements that people can experience, the two that occur the most often for the vast majority of people is an out-of-body experience and the light. Those are the two main ones. Um, most people, 80% in my research base, and that's nearly 4,000 people, adults and children, had an out-of-body experience. So that is extremely common. A lot of people have that. And these out-of-body experiences that a near-death experiencer will have is not the typical out-of-body experience that that most of us have or anybody could have, like in yoga or dreaming or um, for various reasons you might be leaving your body or sense that you're leaving your body. With, with most near-death experiencers, and again, not all of them, there's no way that we can make a carte blanche you know, a comment here. We can say for most of them, for the most, uh, for 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 the greater majority, uh, the outer body experience is very detailed. Ultimately detailed. They, uh, there's a lot of mobility. They're able to go around, um, walk down or go down the hall in the hospital, or maybe go outside of the ho uh, of the hospital itself. Maybe go back home. Um, a lot of them when they're being rushed in the um, um, in the ambulance, will go outside on top of the ambulance and, and either ride on top of the ambulance or just sort of fly, if you will, near the top of the ambulance and, and just go that way. They're following or going with the ambulance the whole distance. And of course, seeing everything on either side and up above, and and are able to report on the scenery, as it were, when they uh, finally are resuscitated. But a lot of them will will do that. They'll be on top. They'll ride on top of the uh, of the ambulance on the roof outside, or they'll or they will seem to fly above the ambulance and and just simply follow it. Um, Another thing that's very common with out-of-body experiences is that they will go home, and they'll be home when the call comes through from the hospital announcing that they had died. So they're there to see who got the call, what the person was wearing, and everything the person said, which can be very embarrassing later on. Yes. <laughs> As you can imagine. Uh, that's also very common. It's very common for the individual, if they're inside the hospital, to go outside um, and sort of hover around the uh, hospital on the outside. Um, and, and some will leave the city and go elsewhere, go to other cities, maybe to visit family and relatives, maybe just look around. There was one gal who uh, had died after surgery, and, and of course, Everybody, it's in the hospital. They're rushing to her bedside, and and she just very calmly gets it, just steps out of her body, walks, seems to walk uh, out of the room, down the hall, uh, go uh, uh, walks down the stairs, uh, goes outside of the hospital, 
and is walking along the sidewalk outside of the hospital and is seen and talks to people out there and keeps on walking until, this was a woman, until the awareness came that she really didn't want to do that. She really thought she would go back to her body. It was starting to snow, and she didn't want to be outside in the snow. Now, this is a person outside their body, bear in mind. Uh, you can call it a spirit being or the soul. And, and so she went back into her body. Those people she saw outside the hospital that saw her, that is to say her spirit body, and she saw them, that was all verified. They actually saw her. They saw her as physically real. They saw her as solid, even though she was not. So we we run into a lot of really um, verifiable and lucid and coherent and detailed narratives about the out-of-body experience. In the same way with the light, uh, most of them experience the light, adults and children. It's not a light like a yard light or a light in your house or some really bright light in a laboratory. This is a light that is described by adults at least as so bright and so powerful that once you're in it, it's like... It's like a million orgasms all happening at once. So it's an extremely powerful light. This is a light that is intelligent. It knows your name. It knows all about you. It can converse with you. So uh, this is a living light. This is very much a live kind of light. Um, There's various other kinds of lights people can see, but... um, the main one is like that. So, so those are the two major elements. Uh, there's a lot of people who are greeted by a greeter of some kind, like a loved one who died and gone on before, or a pet, an animal. Yes, there's lots of animals. People report animals all the time, be it an adult or a child. Um, they can be a, 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 a sort of a light being, um, a being made of light, that is. Uh, It can be a religious figure. It can be a a loved one, a friend, um, an angelic kind of figure. Um, So being greeted, um, a lot of that also occurs. All of the rest of it uh, doesn't happen all that often. We'll have life reviews. Those are fairly often. Um, But this idea of being in dialogue with the being on the other side, um, being some kind of discussion or tribunal or meeting or group event or getting into a long dialogue with anyone, um, that can occur certainly, but it's not that as often as the out-of-body experience and the light. Those are the two major elements. Um, And, you know, the idea that um, if you're given a choice whether to come back or not, um, (laughs) 
obviously you're back. So yeah. if you chose to stay, that didn't work. <laughs> there I was found this... it interesting too that uh, reading in the book of um, even twins, where one of them, you know, they they realized later on that it was like um, early on in the pregnancy that it was like the fetus just like got dissolved or wasn't there. It was like an aborted twin. Uh-huh. And that some of them were actually greeted by them, and they never realized it until, like, you know, the near-death experience, and then they're finding out, it's like, well, yeah, they they were a twin. That happens to both child experiencers and adult experiencers. Uh, happens a lot to women, uh, women more than men, if we're talking about adults, who are greeted on the other side of death by the child they miscarried or by the absolved twin, the the twin that was absorbed into the body, was never born. Uh, they gave birth to only one of the pair, and they'll be met on the other side by the other one. Yeah, I found and, that rather interesting. Yeah. A lot of, uh, of twins, twinless twins, this kind of thing. Who was it? Elvis Presley had this memory, very clear memory of his twin. He knew his twin um, and was able to have a relationship with his twin, even though his twin was on the other side. Um, The twin died at birth, I think, or something. I don't remember all the details. It might be in the book. I don't remember. There's so many different cases in there. Uh, But this idea of twins and twinless twins, this is very common. This is not unusual at all. And what, is, what causes a lot of problems with people is when they're met on the, uh, when the greeter is the child that they aborted. And, and this happens fairly often. The, and, to both, and to both men and women. Um, I don't know if the case is in this book or it's in the book Coming Beyond the Light. But there is, a, you know, Beyond the Light just came out last month, a reissue of the original book, but it's still very valid, uh, still a pioneer in its field. And there was this, um, no, it's in the book um, The New Children and Near-Death Experiences. This was a male um, near-death experiencer. He was in his 50s, I think. And he was greeted by, I don't know, seven, eight, or nine children, babies, and uh, various ages of children on the other side. And they were all beautiful children. So he asked the greeter, who who were the children? And, And the greeter said, they are all yours. And he looked at her kind of funny. He said, well, I never married anybody. I never had any children. And he said, these are all the children you paid to have aborted. And it, it, it just so hit him that when, when he returned to life, he became an advo- advocate, a very, um, a very um, dynamic advocate for... Um, pro-life. Yeah, very, very, very pro-life. He he uh, could not support abortion at all anymore, ever. And he appeared before the U.S. Congress or some kind of investigative committee. Uh, I, I mean, he really took this very, very seriously and still does. 
Now, in the book, too, you mentioned that there are four types of near-death experiences. I was able to find four types. The initial, the unpleasant or hellish, the pleasant or heavenly, and the transcendent. And with the initial, that's not very many elements at all. That's like maybe one element, maybe two or three Something like um, being met on the other side by the friendly dark or a special voice, maybe a quick in and out of body experience, maybe being met just by a greeter, and that's all. I mean, one thing will happen, or maybe two, and that's it. Uh, They're usually very brief. Children have a lot of them. Most of these types of experiences will happen to children, but adults have them too. Um, but, but even though it's relatively brief and few things happen, the person can still manifest the full pattern of physiological and psychological after effects. So these are not something to just toss off and, and say, you know, nothing much happened. Um, it was just a dream, there wasn't anything to it. Uh, look for the after effects. That will always tell you uh, what you really went through. Um, with the unpleasant or hellish, that is not, that's not rare. Uh, don't believe anybody who tells you they're rare. The hellish experiences are not rare. Uh, I truly, in, in my research base, it's one out of seven In Dr. Maurice Rawlings, it's one out of five. I really feel that that they're underreported, that, you know, it's probably closer to maybe about a third of the cases are hellish or unpleasant or distressing or frightening, you know, whatever word you want to use. But but people people who have them won't talk about them. They won't admit they have them. They won't talk about them. Um, maybe they're embarrassed or shamed or confused. I, I, I don't know why they won't talk about them. Um, they, they, uh, they were very open with me, and they would talk to me about them, but with other researchers, um, they seem to be very reluctant to open up about these, these kinds of experiences. Maybe they, don't want, they just didn't want to relive that experience. Yeah, or they they just don't want to admit they had it. Or with a lot of them that that I spoke with and had sessions with, um, they were angry about all these people who talk about heaven and loving lights and angels and saying that's not what it's like. You know, there's lots of different... uh, uh, environments on the other side, and our environment is just as the one one we went to is just as important and valid and real as as what you went through. <laughs> um, and some of them are just kind of upset that um, the television shows and talk shows they and books are mostly about the heavenly experience when um, not even half of the people have that kind. And um, so, so you run into that kind of little bit of resentment or a little bit of confusion sometimes. 
Now, there's when, more than one type of uh, hell experience, isn't there? Oh, there, there, there's several different imageries, just like in heaven. There's several different image, imageries. Um, some people wind up in a whirlpool. Some people, or, or a vortex, a spinning vortex. Some people wind up um, abandoned in space. And there's no floor, there's no ceiling, there, there's no form, there's no shapes, there's nothing. And, and so they're just abandoned out in space. Um, some, some people have a sense of being abandoned in the void, so there's nothing there but them. Um, and some people wind up in a Hollywood version of, of hell with gargoyles and torture chambers and and all of this kind of thing, there's a lot of different variables, uh, just like there is for any other experience. There's a lot of different variables that they can run into. And for the heavenly, you know, that's the one that the shows are about and the movies are about and the books are about. You know, everybody, or almost everybody, is certainly familiar with the more pleasant or the more heavenly near-death experience. But again, not even half of the people have it. So that, that, that makes me as a researcher kind of wonder, you know. Sometimes um, I think that people just, um, they're just drawn to whatever it is they want to hear rather than what's really there. They, they, they just want what they want to hear. They don't want to hear anything else. And, um, uh, and, and that, you know, everybody's familiar with that. So uh, I don't think we have to go into the more heavenly kind of experience, although we can later. Then there's the transcendent experience. Very seldom is that ever personal. It almost always has to do with the human family or history. Um they're usually long and complex. These are the people that um, are likely to hop a, a light ray and tour the universe or find out all about history from beginning to end or learn about um, a particular need in the human family and what they can do to help out. Sometimes they wind up in some kind of heavenly college or university and take lessons. So um, that can be very involved. Uh, but again, very seldom is it ever personal. The, the most personal are the, are, the, are the more unpleasant or pleasant type of experiences, what some people would call heaven and hell. Those are the ones where you typically find life reviews and uh, really personal issues are dealt with, are handled, are discussed are revealed, um, lots of revelations in those kind of experiences. Um, you know, those are the ones that we're the most familiar with, certainly the the pleasant or heavenly experience, but those are the, uh, the two main types that are the most personal. Very, very interesting. Yeah, you know, when you get into the nitty-gritty, then you be, you begin to realize, now, wait a minute here, this isn't quite what I thought it was. 
Uh, it isn't quite what I've been hearing all these many years in the movies and reading about in all the books, that the near-death experience is actually a very complicated and not easily defined phenomenon. We, we we can't just say, well, it's always this way, and you know, it's a light at the end of the tunnel, and you know, we we find out what our purpose is, and we come back and we do it. You know, it's 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 not that simple. But what makes research like this so dynamic? Uh, and this is the uh, announcement I wanted to make for everybody. The entire field changed about two and a half, three years ago. The whole field. And it was a very abrupt change. And that was because of four clinical prospective studies done in three countries, plus a plethora of papers published in a broad span of peer-reviewed journals. I mean lots of papers. Lots and lots and lots of papers were published. And and because of all of this science and investigation and medical uh, in, investigations, uh, today the near-death experience is the number one choice of scientists worldwide to study consciousness itself. What we now know because of all of this study and um, and uh, especially clinical prospective studies, is that the near-death experience is not connected in any way to oxygen deprivation, to drug hallucinations, to um, uh, anoxia, um, the dying brain theory, uh, all of these different... um, objections that skeptics bring up, every single one of them has been addressed and proved not so. What I found interesting was um, when it has to do with the brain, that actually shows an improvement in their brain. And I was like, wow, that's amazing. You come back smarter than you were before. That's That's a signature feature of the near-death experience is you come back smarter than you were before, no matter how long you were dead. Whether you were dead for a few minutes, or for a few hours, or for a few days. Um, you come back smarter than you were before. But, but you know, by, by, by showing that, by verifying that medically, um, we know today that things like out-of-body experiences, the dead come back, otherworldly journeys, visitors from the other side, all of that is now considered normal and typical to the phenomenon. Um, And in saying that, I hope you're hearing this, John. I hope your audience is hearing this. In, in In saying that, it changes the conversation. To say that an out-of-body experience is normal, to say the dead come back is normal, to say that otherworldly journeys are normal, this has nothing to do with hallucinations. This has nothing to do with dreams and wishes. This has nothing to do with a person being crazy. It is normal. 
Yeah, that's why when you know when I read that in your book, I was like, wow, that's just amazing. You know, because even because um, the longer you go without oxygen, the you know the more brain damage you're going to have. Unless you have a near death. Yeah, unless you are near death, and I, and I found that amazing. Cause I was like, whoa, that's just totally the opposite of everything you've ever heard. Right. There's a a lot of <laughs> things about the experience that are kind of opposite of anything you've ever heard. The average, what we call time out in research, that is to say no vital signs, no brain waves, no oxygen, no, you know, the heart's not beating. In other words, vital signs, no vital signs. The average time that a person is without uh, vital signs is 5 to 20 minutes, and, and that's that's average. And as you said, you know, we have to have oxygen uh, to the brain within three to four minutes or we can have brain damage. This is one of the ways that you can verify that what the person experienced was a real near-death experience. Uh, Sometimes there's brain damage, but usually not very much. There is little or no brain damage, and they come back smarter than they were before, especially children. This is where you get the really big jumps in intelligence is with the kids, especially under the age of six. Uh, but any age, you, you come back smarter than you were before. Uh, I was that, that, That's what shocked me there. I was like, whoa. It's like, it's, uh, so I said, <laughs> it's hard to put these books down of yours. It's just like, I want to I know more. <laughs> you know, it, it's, you know, it makes you even, even more curious. And I know well, you yeah. even said there are some. There's even near-death look-alikes, though, also. Yeah, uh, near-death-like experience. That is a research term, and it is part of the field of study. Near-death-like experiences. You can have a near-death experience without being near death. And why this happens, you know, I think only God knows. I mean, who knows? But it, but it does happen. Uh, people can have them without being near death. I, I discussed that in Beyond the Light quite a bit and, and uh, give a number of cases. That was the first time that anyone had ever really spent a lot of time working on these, uh, these um, rather interesting differences the near-death-like experience was in the book Beyond the Light. And again, that just came out last month, so it's newly newly available everywhere at any you know, bookstore. It can be ordered or Amazon.com, or they can get it off my uh, online bookstore on my website, which is just my name.com. So it's www.pmhatwater.com. L- let me give you a couple of examples of a near-death-like experience. One of them happened to uh, an African-Canadian, not an African-American, an African-Canadian. Um, he was in his apartment, and he was uh, sitting on his sofa, got up from his sofa, uh, wide awake. I mean, and, you know, this is broad daylight, wide awake, gets up from his sofa, walks across his apartment, goes over to the windows, and and I don't remember whether he was opening them or closing them, one or the other, and and did that, turned around, and and was walking back to his sofa when he literally walked into a 
full-blown near-death experience. Walked into it. Fully conscious. Walked into one. And, of course, it completely changed his life. His centered around the real meaning of the Bible. He never read the Bible before in his life. And um, after that experience, he hungered to read the Bible, couldn't read it enough, and was making all of these changes and noting all these things that he had been told and instructed, and then uh, went to as many seminaries as he could, talking to people in the process of of, of going after their uh, doctorate of, of divinity, and devoted the rest of his life to uh, to helping people uh, realize that the Bible was not written the way they thought it was, and it doesn't have the meanings that a lot of our clerics and uh, ministers claim that it does. So that was was his bent. Um, He displayed all of the after effects, physiological and psychological, afterward. So he had a genuine experience. You know, this is how you tell with the after effects. If, If they're displaying that pattern or close to it, then they probably had a genuine near-death experience. Um, Another one happened in the state of Virginia, and it was a woman a Sunday morning. She had a front porch, and she walked out on her front porch on on Sunday morning, bent over to pick up the Sunday newspaper, which is always a big one, and, and was writing herself, you know, standing up again, and looked into the rising sun and 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 just by looking into the rising sun something happened to her and she went into that greater light and had a full blown near death experience with all of the after effects so you don't have to be killed uh or nearly die you can have one of these without being near death. And you can even have them, too. I think I was reading, um, correct me if I'm wrong, if you're a helper helping someone as they're dying, you can experience it? It's what, they call, it's what we call the empathic experience. In other words, you can share uh, the death experience, and uh, the book teaches you how. Um, the, the things that you can do to help the person die. Um, but, you know, principally, it, it goes like this, that, of course, you always want to get permission first, always get permission first. But you can um, relax into that kind of meditative state. You're breathing with the individual, and you're getting that rhythmic breathing so that you're with them and feeling more and more of their energy and and being and maybe holding on to their hand, maybe stroking their arm and and just allowing whatever to come into your mind or look around with your eyes open and see if you see anything is the person starting to glow is there um you know, are you seeing them leave their body? Do you have the sense that other beings are around? Is there any difference in color or pressure or sound? 
and then just again allow whatever is happening to happen so you're 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 with this person in consciousness and you can go with them at least up to uh you know so far you know I, I don't know anybody who was able to go all the way it's it's like there's a gate or a guardian at the gate or 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 some kind of a line of demarcation so to speak that you can only go so far but you can go with them to that line or space and dialogue with them if you want um maybe sometimes you're doing it mind to mind rather than voice but you can do the voice also and you can share the experience accompany the individual aid the individual in the dying process help them through it Uh, it, it's a wonderful gift a wonderful service a wonderful gift if you can do that are willing to do that it's not hard to do and um Help the person die. Yeah, it was. It was um, like I said the other night too. When my mom passed away, I was there with her. Yeah. And it is. It's hard to describe. It's it's a sad feeling because you know it's like okay they're not here anymore. But at the same point, that to me is a real blessing and a rarity to actually be with somebody as they take their last breath. Oh yeah. Oh absolutely yes. Yes. So, and it is, um, you know, a wonderful experience. Right. And and if you can learn to do the awe breath, you know, we've, we've talked about that before, and um, the audio presentation as you die, uh, if you can learn to do that, if you can learn to do or are willing to try to do the empathic experience, accompany them. Um, these are things that... The average individual or nurse or loved one can actually do that makes a tremendous difference in the individual's life, in your life, instead of just sitting there crying or or, or waiting or twiddling your thumbs or sleeping or reading a magazine. You know, this gives you something that that's very viable, that's very real, that you can actually do. It's a function that you can do, it's a gift, it's a service. Yeah, and, and I'm hoping to someday be able to experience that again and be with somebody when um, they do go ahead and take their last breath. Well, you know, practice those steps or at least have them in your mind. And I, I'm sure it'll, you know, for you that, that should be easy to do or yes. fairly easy. Yeah, and it's, uh, you know, it's interesting because I know, um, like I said, you know, my the home health nurse that came by and she goes, well, when you're done with that book, can I read that? I said, yes, you can read that. And so she's one, you know, and she said that they do, um, on the hospice side, they do talk about helping someone to cross over. Oh, they do? Yes. So it's, and I was like, hmm, I said, oh, I didn't know that. And she goes, oh, yeah, she goes, they've got people that come in and will help them. Ah. And they do, um, you know, at least this hospice that's in this area, they, they'll play, you know, meditation-type music, relaxing music, and... Well, that's good. Yeah. Oh, that's good to hear that that um, they're on top of that because most most hospices won't let them do that. 
Yeah. I don't know why, but they this won't. One, uh, these around here are a little bit more um, open-minded, I guess. Oh, well, that's good. So I told her, I said, yeah, so I, you can use the book anytime. I said, you know, once I'm done, said, then I'll pass it on to you. <laughs> so I also found it interesting, too, in here that we get to pick our genes and physical characteristics, and we're learning that from near-death experiences. Yeah, that's in the book Beyond the Light. Uh, um, there were several cases, but, but the one... What what was his name? Berkeley Carter Mills or something like that. Anyway, this one case. This yeah. is an adult. This is a male. And um, in his in his near death experience, he was he went back to birth and and could see exactly what was going on um, just before he was born. And as he was being born, he he could see the sperm fertilize the egg. His father's sperm fertilized his mother's egg, and and clearly saw that it was him. He picked his characteristics, and he had to pick them really, really, really fast because uh, he couldn't delay at all, or or it would just happen automatically. But but he could pick. He could pick and choose uh, what the color of his hair or any, you know, various behaviors or um, weaknesses or strengths that he would have. Um, I think he, he picked a um, – he passed by the gene for club-footedness because he felt like in this lifetime he didn't need that gene. Um, there was another fellow I spoke to. Uh, he was in a wheelchair. I think he was in his late twenties, thirties. Had multiple sclerosis, and he was uh, very much aware that he had picked that. He wanted that, and he had picked that during those brief seconds where you can make those kinds of choices after the uh, the sperm has fertilized the egg. And there was another one who had a, an extreme, severe form of arthritis. And she was aware that, she, and this was a woman, she was aware that she had picked that and why she had picked that, uh, what she wanted to learn from having that experience in the airplane. So there was a number of experiencers who could um, go back, review, see again, live again, uh, that moment when they made these choices and they were able to see why they made those choices. Why did they choose that? Uh, there's one woman's case in, in uh, Beyond the Light, I believe it is, of a woman who had a cleft palate. And, um, and, and she had picked that to learn humbleness. And her story is just an incredible story. S uh, certainly the cleft palate as, as a babe being born and all the things she had to go through to get that addressed and taken care of and the surgery and and all that she went through. Um, and uh, she became um, a midwife and a healer. And she devoted the rest of her life to healing and helping the less fortunate. Yeah, 
because I thought, you know, it's like, you know, anything we have to deal with um, or defects is just genetic, but it's kind of interesting to know that our spirit chose that. Well, you know, we can't say that in all cases because that's a, that's a trap to make those kinds of absolute statements because you just simply don't know. Uh, but we can we can say that that is true in some cases. And, of course, the big question is, is it true in most of them? Yeah, and you can even pick your parents, too, sometimes. Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. And many of them remember doing that. There's one one woman who uh, who uh, chose this very severe and debilitating type of arthritis that she would get very young in life. Um, she picked her parents. This this is one of these these um, you know you could call it accidental. I don't know what kind of label you'd use. But she picked musical parents because she wanted that gene for being um, a, a concert musician. So she she picked parents who had, the woman had miscarried once before, a little boy, and they wanted very, very much to have, a, have another child. And she felt that she would be very loved, she would be very taken care of in that family, and she would have those wonderful musical genes. Uh, both the, the father and the mother were accomplished musicians. So everything was fine. She was like six months in utero, maybe seven months in utero, and then the mother's father died very suddenly. And the mother... Unfortunately, a lot of a lot of women believe this to be true that you want to hold back those feelings if you're pregnant and you you don't want to grieve too much or cry too much if you're pregnant. Actually, the reverse is true. So so this mother held in her feelings because she did not want to uh miscarry a second time. So she held her feelings in, she did not express her grief. Rather, she expressed it internally. And because she did, it poisoned the daughter. It poisoned the child in, in, the, uh, in the womb. And uh, I, I talked about this woman, about this at length, uh, because she feels that this is why she developed this uh, unusually debilitating. Yes, she chose to have some problems, but... She didn't choose to have it that bad, that fast. And and she believes it was because of her mother's grief and her mother held it in. And um, the chemicals that were uh, created by doing that became literally poison and poisoned her. So she didn't get quite uh, the family that she had chosen, that she had wanted, that she had figured out that she would have. Um, it was all changed because of the mother holding in her grief. Yeah, people don't realize what um, the emotions and all that can affect a, uh, a fetus with the mother. Oh, yeah, those chemicals. You know, emotions are chemicals. 
and they they literally can be very debilitating. What did you think of that little section called Womb with a View? That was interesting, I had to say. So there were a lot of, um, it's I'm trying to catch up with a lot in the book, and it's just so much information I try to take in real quickly. So that's why right now, too, I'm skimming uh, through because i got sections marked off with um, with little notes, uh, which is why all of a sudden I'm quiet. I'm like, oh, wait a minute, where am I here? <laughs> uh, well, we we see this to be true again and again and again. I certainly saw it a lot in my own research that um, the fetus is actually very active from about uh, seven months in utero on. You've really got a functioning brain, a functioning mind. You you've really got a four real baby in there. It's not just a fetus. This is a child who, in many cases, could live on their own if they were born or if they were uh, removed for any reason. Um, but you've got a very viable child in there. And, and one of the things we're finding uh, with children uh, who can remember being in the womb um, and especially about that time frame, or if they had a near-death experience and um, are able then to be, uh, the faculties expand and they are able to see more and know more. But one of the things we're finding is that um, that children in utero can still see and hear and remember and think and make decisions. They're not just little blank slates in there and they're not just little wobbly little tadpoles that that these are human beings and they are able to function as such and so, and in some of my cases um the children were able they will pick up quicker if there is some kind of of really great emotion whether that be happiness and joy or whether that be anger and fear, um, it, it seems like if the emotions are more intense, then the child is more apt to pick it up and remember it. Um, but in this one particular uh, case, it's in the new children and near-death experiences. Uh, this was a child uh, still in the womb, and, and the mother... Um, she had not had any children before. It's just mom and dad and this future child. And and it was like maybe month, month and a half before the child was due, and there was no heartbeat. And and again and again and again, no heartbeat. So the doctor figured that it was the child would be stillborn, that this uh, was a dead child. The father, when he found out. Uh, about the no heartbeat, went out and got drunk, came back that night and accused his wife of killing his son. He called it his son. And picked up his wife. He was throwing furniture all over the place. And then he picked up his wife and threw her across the room and she landed belly first into the corner of a very hard wooden table. Well, of course, it split her open. They had to rush her to the hospital. She uh, almost died, 
and they delivered the baby. The baby was indeed a stillborn, a lot of hair, funny-looking little kid, so they just kind of threw this this blob in the corner and did everything they could to save the mother and control the hemorrhaging and all this kind of thing, and they were able to save the mother. And after some time, I forget how much time it was, but after some time, this little blob they threw in the corner started breathing, and the heartbeat started going. So the doctors twirled around and started uh, treating the baby that maybe this child is, um, you know, going to come to and and, uh, be an air breather after all. And, And sure enough, the child did live, but the child had so many problems, so much wrong with the child, that the doctors went to the parents and said, this kid's going to die. I mean, there's no way that this baby can live. Therefore, can we have this baby to run um, medical tests on for about a month? Can we use the the child as um, a guinea pig, so to speak? And the parents gave their permission. Uh, By the way, the, the father in the drunken rage, the only reason that the doctor did not report the father to the authorities is because the doctor was the father's drinking buddy. So that's why it never got reported to the police. Um, So they kept the child and uh, worked on it and did all kinds of experiments. And a lot of people get really horrified when I say that. It's like, oh, dear, you know, they're doing all these experiments. Well, in this case, it turned out to be a good deal because of all the things they did that they would normally not do to a baby, that child lived. Um, and that child had uh, uh, was a healthy child. Uh, unfortunately, the father kept trying to kill the child for, off and on uh, throughout the, the years of her life, but um, uh, the child lived, and, and she was a typical child near-death experiencer, comes back brilliant with a mind so far advanced from her father, her mother, her grandmother, her grandfather, aunts, uncles. No one in the family had a mind like this kid had. Um, And at the age of two and a half, she had her own library card. Oh, gosh. She had her own library card. She was reading that much. And she went up to her father... That there was um, kind of like a family meeting with aunts and uncles and stuff, and they were all in the living room. And she just marched up to her father and pointed her finger in his nose and and described the event that night when he came home in a drunken rage, throwing her mother across the room. She described uh, the condition of the room, what happened to all the furniture, what everything looked like. Uh, what he did to her mother, and she uh, gave him back every word he said. Now, mom and the dad had never discussed this with anybody. Nobody knew. They didn't tell anybody. So here's this little two-and-a-half-year-old kid accusing her dad, saying everything, and he could de- he could deny nothing. Um, and at the age of two-and-a-half, you know, it, it, come to find out that she did indeed 
have a womb with a view, and even though she was supposedly dead, that is to say, you know, quit, quit breathing in the womb, she saw everything. She saw everything about that room, everything about him, and she remembered every word he said. Totally surprised him. Ah, ah. Yeah, well, that's the understatement of the world. Yeah. <laughs> he was enraged. I can imagine, because he was like, you know, how did she know, and who's been talking, and... Nobody had been talking. Yeah, so that's why, you know, it totally outraged him, because he's wondering, you know, how she found out about all all that. Yeah. So, um, I was also reading, too, like I said, your book is so informative. Um, And I think it's good to talk about right now, too, is because with the holidays, there's so many people that contemplate suicide. And you've also go in a book about people who have committed suicide. Yeah, a whole chapter to. on it. And um, can you touch a little bit on, on what they experienced? Most of your suicides will have a pleasant experience. Most of them do. Uh, most of them have the initial experience, that is to say very few things happen. Um, just maybe one or two elements will occur. Uh, very few of them have a hellish or an unpleasant experience. Most of them have the pleasant kind. Uh, but again, usually it, it doesn't last that long. Um, what most of these experiencers will say afterward is uh, they'll be very surprised that they had um, such a pleasant experience and they come back really filled with that knowledge that somehow, some way, they can live. It's okay. They can rebuild their life. Um, they're not going to be condemned for what they did. Um, that they can help others not to commit suicide. Um, they can be a spokesperson for life and that life really is worth living and that they can rebuild their lives. So most of them get that kind of help or that kind of inspiration from these experiences and come back um, very determined to stay. Now, a lot of researchers have said from the beginning in the field that um, the near-death experience was a suicide deterrent. Well, sometimes yes, most of the time no, um, because some t- for many experiencers coming back from this kind of phenomenon uh, is really not only a challenge, but it can be very, very difficult because they come back different. They're thinking different. They're talking different. Often, and there are changes in the body. Um, and and they find life is always very difficult to to do, um, and there can be lots of periods of depression. Um, it can be just really more than just a challenge, and because of that kind of difficulty, and they know what the other side is like, they know what dying is like, they choose to kill themselves and go back, or at least attempt to. Uh, with adults, oh, I, I can't remember the figure exactly. I'm going to say right around 5%, but I'm, uh, I, I, I don't remember exactly, but it's close to that, that did try to go back 
because they knew the other side was better than this one, and they wanted to go back uh, where they had previously been and could not. Um, you know, if it's not your time, <laughs> you're going to come back whether you're go- whether you're crippled or paralyzed. You know, sometimes they make the condition much, much worse by having tried that suicide. But with children, it was tw- it was right around twenty, twenty one percent tried tried suicide after their near death experience to get back to the other side. And yeah, I, I've become just a real advocate for child experiencers because they respond to the experience very differently than adults do. And when we're looking at children trying to commit suicide to get back to the other side, what we're not recognizing is the way a child thinks. A child does not think that suicide is wrong. Killing oneself to a child is not wrong. They, They have a different idea of what death is. And and for the average child, their logic goes like this. I was in this bright and beautiful and loving world when I was not breathing. When I started breathing, this world disappeared. It went away. I couldn't get back there. Ah, the way to get back there is to stop my breathing. You know, when you're not breathing, you're in this beautiful place. When you are breathing, you're not there anymore. So the logic of a child is, stop my breathing so I can go back. And and they don't think of it as as being um, bad or harmful or that it could really hurt their parents or it could cause a lot of problems. They don't think of those kind of things. They just want to get back to where they once were. So in the back of... The New Children in Near-Death Experiences is a very, very large resource section. And in that section, I teach um, very simple, very easy lesson on how to help kids who want to get back but don't know how so that we can prevent this um, suicide attempt. And that is simply visualization. You know, wherever you have once been in consciousness, you can return there. And it's, a, it's as true for children as it is for an adult. So through a visualization practice, they can go back to where they once were. They're still breathing. They're still alive. But they can go back and stay for however long it seems right and then come back to this plane, this life, their family. And they can go back and forth whenever they need to. Uh, I think a a good parent or a good teacher will instruct the child that you don't want to stay over there. You don't want to go back too often because your life now is here in a breathing body. Uh, But you can go back once in a while to kind of help you out. And, and And for those parents who do this, who allow and invite their child to uh, have this kind of exercise. Um, It just makes all the difference in the world. It takes away the tension. It takes away the desire to leave this world. I know, too, you've got a big section in the book on um, how religions have a gripe about everything. 
about near-death experiences and all in research. Uh, run that by again. A big section on what? Religion. Oh, religion. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> now they're not too really. It does. It seems like they're. Uh, some of them are not too happy with uh, some of the. Um, no, not at all. Going on. <clears throat> There's any number of ministers who have lost their churches because they gave a sermon on the near-death experience. I know because they're they're um, not wanting to acknowledge um, a lot of the information that you all have been receiving from the research. Well, it seems to cause a little bit of a threat or a little bit of a conundrum, which is um, which is a real puzzle to researchers because the near death phenomenon really validates religion. It validates spirituality. It validates the idea of deity and soul and prayer and all these incredible things. It validates what we learn about the real world in our various religious traditions. So you would think that the churches would be clamoring to get this kind of material into their churches and into their pulpits and into their classrooms that that they would be very grateful and happy to get this kind of material. Most of your pre, um most of your chaplains are and and yet it turns out to be just the opposite. And um, a lot of the different churches that I've spoken to say has to do with the revelation that they feel the revelations that come to experiencers are in defiance of what's written in the Bible or the Koran or the the Koran is um, well, I should say Muslims uh, seem to be the most vitriolic, which really surprised me because there's a lot of things about the near-death experience again that validates uh, that validates Islam, but yet um, and especially with children. I know it was a, it was a Catholic Church also the first couple of decades of research that were. Um, against children having near-death experiences, going after them, uh, embarrassing them, uh, picking on them, uh, attacking them, even in in church missives and and websites. Just you know, if 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 a child mentions having seen the light or an angel, then they've been possessed by the devil. Lucifer has them. And a very similar kind of thing from from our wonderful Muslim friends. So, um, and, and on my website again, you know, pmhatwater.com, uh, in the near death cases section, I have a section in there where uh, various people have given me permission to carry their cases on on my website. And I've got a couple of them that are Muslim. And one that was a child experiencer, and she finally had to flee her country. She was originally from Turkey. She had to flee because her parents um, kept trying to kill her uh, because she had a near-death experience and dared to talk about it. And um, there there was a man also that gave me his experience, and he was... A lot older, a lot stronger, a lot more accomplished, and he said, "I don't care." <laughs> you know, he said, "I don't care if they come after me. I'm going to talk about what I saw." So there is this a little bit, uh, and in some cases, maybe a lot, 
of, of disparage or maybe a challenge to revelation in in some of the churches. So where you would think the churches would just be thrilled to pieces to get their hands on this kind of data, sometimes it's it's the opposite. Well, it does challenge when um, a lot of the foundations of the religion and a lot of the religions out there, according to the you know the way the um, leaders are looking at it, the church elders and all. I, I think it's really just the clerics, you know, like what you said, the church elders or the clerics, uh, rather than the actual core belief, because you get into the core belief of any religion on this planet and you've got principally the same story and if if you really do a lot of research one of the interesting things that's popping up now is and and certainly uh, Dr. Raymond Moody is an exponent of this that um, they believe that religion itself any kind of religion but religion itself came from near-death experiences that these type of people were the ones telling their stories that um, got religion started in the first place. Yeah, cause, uh, and I, I took world uh, religion, intro to world religions in college, and I noticed similarities even with um, paganism. Right, all of them. And they all have the same concepts. Mm-hmm. It's right. They all break off into different meanings. but um, And I think a lot of them... And what's going on, too, a lot of people in um, the psychic community mm-hmm. are aware of a big shift that's taking place. And um, Are a you lot speaking of, the, of right now? Yes. Yeah. And a lot of it is um, upsetting some of the world religions. Well, yeah. <laughs> um, because they can't hold on to their people yeah. like they used to. They need to invite inquiry and discussion and debate. And a lot of churches are not set up for that, and that's a tragedy, I think. Um, we need to have debate, and we need to have discussions, and we need to have questions. Um, just because you're questioning a certain tenet in your faith does not mean you're unfaithful. It does not mean that that you are saying that your religion is wrong and that you know better. It's not saying that at all. It's just saying that there's more to the story and you want to know more. Yeah, and I think a lot of it is um, the religions, mm, some of them try to keep fear. And, yeah, you, and with the near-death experiences, trying to talk about it and um, you know, that's, that's setting some people free, so they're not being afraid anymore. Yeah, that's certainly true. In my research base, uh, two-thirds of them left um, the church they were attending or never attended a church to begin with. One-third stayed. Uh, those third, That third that stayed in the religion of their choice or... Um, the religion that they were attending, those who stayed, seemed to want to change their church in some way. Um, It's like they became more evangelical and and they wanted to sort of pump more energy and more 
more drive and and more enthusiasm into their church um, but those that those that left invariably were drawn into things like you know your eastern religions and buddhism and hinduism and and native american uh ideas and aboriginal ideas and even paganism or witchcraft they were drawn into these other um types uh, and ways of considering deity and and why are we here and you know all the big, big major questions um but one of the things i noticed was that a large contingent um started to come back to churches after about 10 15 years away they would come back and and a lot of them would go back to the episcopal church you know there's been a lot of major changes in the episcopal church and in many ways it's a lot more open uh, than what you might think. We've got guitar services and uh, lots of different um, ways of approaching uh, prayer and, dis- and spiritual disciplines now in the Episcopal Church. Uh, but many of them would wind up in metaphysical churches, among them Unity, Unity Church, uh, the Church of Religious Science, which has now changed its name to United Centers of Spiritual Living, um, but those seem to be the two most popular. Uh, some of them go to Divine Science, which is uh, more based on the kind of thing you're doing, John, with, with mediumship. Uh, they call it spiritualism. Um, a lot of them are drawn to that as well, but most of them seem to go to um, the Church of Religious Science or Unity. And again, in about oh, 10 to 15 years afterward, I was just amazed at how many of them came back to a church environment. And I really think it's because of that, the, the idea of, of fellowship and community. You know, we human beings are, are kind of herd, have the herd instinct. We, we really like to be around other human beings. We like this idea of comfort and friendship and talking and communicating and, you know, all these kinds of things that we chatty human beings do. And and if you have a problem, the idea of having someone else around that can help you. So, again, the idea of community and fellowship. And it's like, you know, they've had enough of roaming around the world or certainly roaming around their mind trying out new and different ideas, and they want to come back to some kind of group effort uh, or group worship. And and they do. Yeah, just so they, um, they, and um, do a lot of them try to find other people who have had the same experiences as themselves? Well, some of them do. Um, I wouldn't say a lot of them do. What a lot of them uh, actually do is to try to find out about the experience itself, not looking for another experiencer per se, but wanting to find out about the experience itself. It seems like the driving impetus here is to find out or prove to themselves that they're not crazy. You know, and then once they find out, 
that what they went through was normal for this experience, uh, they're certainly not crazy, then uh, that's a huge relief, uh, just a huge relief, and and can make a, 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 a really positive difference for that person in their life. Um, and then if they have an invitation to be with a near-death group, there are a lot of them out there now through the International Association of Near-Death Studies. We call it INDS. Uh, that is to say we're pronouncing the initials I-A-N-D-S, INDS. Um, they have a website, www.iands.org. You can find out how to join the organization, uh, the many different chapters, if you want to call them that, that already exist. They're called Friends of INs. There's one near you. Um, you can attend or you can start one up yourself, and that's that's always a great adventure. It's uh, an incredibly healing experience to be around other people like you are, you know, and you don't have to explain anything and, you don't have to, uh, you know, be a little timid or hold anything back. That you're really with your fellows, you know, the, the other people who have had the same thing or nearly the same thing, and it's your family, and you know, you, you're around all these people that have died <laughs> and come back. You know, that, that, that's kind of a joke in near-death groups is. You know, we're a bunch of people that have died, you know. <laughs> a bunch of dead people walking around, smiling and laughing and having a good time. Or how they cheated, they cheated death that one time. They managed to go there to the to the eggs and then come back. <laughs> yep, yep. They went and they came back, and some of them multiple times. Multiple experiences are, are also fairly common. And I know some of them, too, have also talked about um, alternate realities. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, you 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 get um, in a good discussion with a near-death experiencer. Of course, many of them have been there, done that. So it's not a discussion per se, but rather um, a sharing of of their own narrative, of their own story, of what they actually saw and did and, um, when they were in these other worlds. And they and they're very aware coming back that there are other worlds, other realities, other dimensions, other grids, other other matrices besides where we live now in this body um, on on what is commonly called the earth plane, that there are many others. Uh, some come back talking about parallel worlds or, or different matrices or different dimensions. So that becomes very real to most near-death experiencers. Yeah, it's... Uh, that's why I look at it too. When you die, you're going into um, actually shifting from this dimension into another dimension. Yeah, it's like going through a portal or a door. Yeah, and some like I'm one that believes that what's coming up to 2012 is when we're almost going to have like a dual existence, where we're going to be able to communicate in between the dimensions a lot easier. Well, we can certainly do that now. And people who have these kind of experiences, whether it's near death or it's an awakening of some kind, what we commonly call the mountaintop experience, or a transformation of, of consciousness, no matter how it's caused, could be caused by a Kundalini breakthrough, 
could be caused by what the Christians call baptism of the Holy Spirit. There's, there's lots of different um, physical events that can cause this kind of shift. And so we've got a lot of people shifting right now. Um, there, there's no denying that the energy on the earth plane has changed and is changing and changing very rapidly. All you have to do is be a good astrologer. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and right now we've got Pluto squares Saturn, and if that isn't enough to flip your wig, I don't know what is. Yeah, Mercury is <laughs> going into retrograde again real soon. And well, the day after Christmas. Yes, and a lot of people are already feeling the effects of it now. Well, you you feel it about ten days before, yeah. always. Yeah. yeah. I've got people like, what is going on? I said, Mercury is getting ready to go into retrograde. They're like, oh, no, not again. I said, yeah, I know. <laughs> yeah, it, it does it three times a year. Sorry, folks. <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> so but like we're also coming up, I believe, isn't Mars going retrograde too? I don't have my ephemeris with me. Uh, but it seems so. like it's something else besides Well, we got the, uh, winter, Mercury. Sol- the uh, winter solstice coming up too. Yeah. So all that's coming into effect right now. Yeah, but the, these oppositions and these squares of, of really heavy planets, and when we're saying these kinds of things, what we're talking about is energy, we're talking about cycles, we're talking about um, behavior and the way people respond and react, but not just people, animals to the earth plane as well, the universe as well. You know, when we're talking about the major changes, we're, what we're really recognizing and admitting is that, of course, this has nothing to do with near death, but I also happen to be an astrologer. <laughs> um, every 25,920 years, we have what is called the Great Shifting, where the precession of the... Um, of all the signs in the heavens and the equinoxes and everything else um, makes it makes its full turn. In other words, it's the turning of the great wheel. So everything turns, and we're 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 back to square one where uh, the great wheel begins, and and that great wheel will will make its full um, resolution in you know, 25,920 years. So we didn't have the media around 25,920 years ago. Um, There weren't any scientists there that we know of that left any kind of records that we've been able to find. All we can read is what's in terra firma and and, and, you know, do our computer uh, overlays, and that's about all we can do to find out what the Earth was like then, what the change was like then, what the shift was like then. So we know, as thinking human beings today, hopefully a little bit better educated, that 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 energy is picking up. It's picking up in 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 vibratory frequency and response. We we know there's this pickup of energy across. Across the uh, world, we also know that major, 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 huge uh, biblical changes are happening with the land, 
uh, on the earth, in the universe itself. All kinds of changes are happening on other planets. You know, planet Mars is warming up too. It isn't just earth. There's, there's, there's lots of different changes that are occurring in our universe right now, big major ones with the planets, a lot of major changes here, um, and they are affecting us, meaning human beings alive in 2009, um, and we in the United States of America, um, we're, we're seeing this occur with health care, with finances, and so forth and so on. Um, but these these kind of changes are not going to stop. They're going to continue. They're going to continue for decades. It's not going to be over in 2012 uh, by no means. Yeah, that that that's just uh, that's just the ending of the Mayan calendar. That's not the ending of these changes. In fact, they're speeding up, and they're they're becoming even more so. What's happening is that we're waking up. As everything is speeding up, we're waking up, and we're beginning to realize that this causes that, or that causes this, or, you know, there's all these connections, and especially with consciousness, and and it all seems to roll back to that same subject called consciousness, and and that we, our minds, are so powerful and 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 what we do just with our words and our thinking and our actions how incredibly powerful we are and you know it's it's like we've got some people saying no it's all being done unto us you know um we don't have any control and the rest of us who are waking up saying well whoops no that's not true we have a lot more control than we think we do and we may not be able to stop Vesuvius, for instance, from erupting, but we can certainly stop the hemorrhaging in our own pocketbooks and in our own families and in our own homes by by changing the way we do things. So, you know, I, I look at all of this as being extremely positive because it's, it's um, really shaking people up, waking people up, uh, you know, you, you you don't need all those cars. You don't need all those electronics. You don't need all those things. What you need is a is is each other's hands, and smiles, and hugs, and being able to have dinner together and play games together. Um, the, the way we're living now is artificial and it's shallow and it's false. And, and to return to real life and, and real community and 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 real love. Um, and that seems to be the upshot, or at least that's what I'm seeing, is that people are starting to wake up and I'm going, you know, it's about time because if we wake up, then we start becoming more creative and we start becoming more honest and we start becoming more lively and, and, and viable in what we do. And I truly believe that we can bring our country out of this. We can bring other countries out of this. Um, we can all work together uh, with positive solutions. But if you're going to posture, if you're going to be political, then you, you know we could wind up destroying each other. Yeah, and I think that's um, you touched on some of that also in uh, the chapter on transformation of consciousness. Yeah. 
which is uh, good because then the following one, because going through here, I just letting people know about it because um, then you're also talking about lights of enlightenment. So, and, and I think uh, what happened is a lot of people were learning quickly, at least I hope we are, that what got us all, everyone in the world, into so much trouble is greed. Yes, it was. Yes, and it was. I think was. a lot of, some people have realized that and they're like, well, you know, I didn't really need this. Well, you know, I don't think we're ever going to get rid of greed because we're always going to have some human beings that will want more than what they ought to have or should have or could have. So there's always going to be that push from the pushy ones. Um, That's kind of normal. We human beings have these... Um, this this broad span of emotions and feelings and drives and desires and instincts. But I, w- I hope what comes out of this is um, that we can take another look at what drives us and realize, uh-uh, uh-uh, I'm going to choose what I'm going to do. I'm not going to be driven by instinct or greed or want or desire I'm going to take a good look at this picture, and I'm going to choose the kind of life and the and the way of living that I that I really feel would most benefit me. And a lot of money is not going to benefit you. What's going to benefit you are friends and family and loving relationships and community and um, people supportive, and schools, and learning, and creativity. Um, those things are ever so beneficial. Yes, maybe a little bit of that that power drive uh, will always be purposeful. You know, that that's what can um, drive major projects, for instance. And that is what has has driven invention from the earliest of times. But there are other ways and better ways we can do it, and I think people are waking up to that. Uh, I was um, with a health care provider today here in good old downtown Charlottesville, Virginia. She's a, health, uh, uh, a cranial sacral therapist, I think, and her husband was had something to do with with planning and and um, construction and electronics, and they had um, they had a number of cars and fancy this, fancy that. I'm, I mean, you know, well to do. And she said that she had just sold one of their cars. They now only have two cars. Uh, they got rid of their convertible. She said that they uh, went through all their insurance. They cut out most of their insurance on their cars and only carry now what they need to carry. They are are cutting down on their cell phone use. They are cutting at least $50 a month off their cell phones, their cell phone bills. They realize now that they can do it by email or there's uh, other ways of doing it and they don't have to use the cell phone so much. And And... You know, I was just watching this this woman standing in front of me, just absolutely alive with excitement, and and talking about all the money that she had saved in the last week. She, they went through everything they owned, they went through all their insurance policies, 
all everything in their life, in their home, in their possessions, and cut, 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 cut. And she was so happy. She said, uh, we now have more time with each other. We, we don't have so many obligations, and we're enjoying that time together. And she was just so happy. And and I really listened to her, listened to all the things that she changed in her life in one week. She said by 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 um, cutting their insurance, of course, sold one of the cars, and then on on the cars that remained, they got the, um, they traded off one of them and got a cheaper model, so that they just have the two cars. She said she saved five thousand dollars on insurance alone on the three cars. Oh, yeah. Definitely believe that. And that's what it is. We have to learn how to change and accept that change. And she was happy about it. So was her husband because they had more time together. Yes. They didn't have so many um, obligations, so many demands, so much pressure. Um, They didn't just cut money. They cut pressure. With all these changes that are going on, um, are you seeing more people now experiencing um, or coming forward about being um, near-death experiences? Um, I don't know. I, I really, I really can't answer that. Um, and the reason I can't answer that is because we haven't had really good numbers in the last year. So I can't really say that there's more. What I can say that we have good numbers on is that there are more and more people having spiritual experiences. And there are more and more people going through the awakening process and having transformations of consciousness. That is increasing. That is exploding. There are so many Yes, there are more near-death experiences, but I don't know that there's that much more. What we're seeing instead is is a complementary type of change. Uh, I, I say complementary because if you have an, an impactful um, transformation of consciousness, you can go through the same or similar after effects. So um, so it's a, it's a complementary kind of experience, um, one that's very similar to the near-death experience. Uh, the near-death experience itself, the phenomenon, seems to be holding at about 4 to 5% of the population. And when I say population, I mean in every country on the earth that we know of, ex- the only exception being Australia. And for some reason in Australia, it's it's uh, about twice that. And why uh, Australia's figures would hover around eight percent, I have no idea. But they do. And but all the other countries, China, um, Russia, all the other countries that are doing this kind of work. And believe it or not, there's a, a lot of them. Uh, China's beginning to open up now. Um, it's still averaging about 4 to 5% of the population. Now, if you're in the crisis um, mode or, or, or place, 
um, like in emergency rooms and this kind of thing. And in other words, if you're if you're in a crisis condition, then in that condition, it's between um, uh, about twelve to twenty-one percent. It, it really uh, hovers right around about nineteen, twenty percent of the people will have a near-death experience. So we're looking at a lot of people who are in crisis, who are in um, the kinds of con- conditions where they could have a near-death experience who do not. So that, that that's always the big question. Why do some people have this and other people do not? And And that's something that only... You know, you can only guess at or maybe in your own channeling or in your own intuition um, come up with an idea. You know, some people say, well, those experiencers chose to have that. Well, maybe they did, maybe they didn't. You know, we have to be really careful when we start using absolutist terms because sometimes it's applicable and sometimes it isn't. And we're really prone to do that in metaphysical circles, in New Age circles, sometimes even in New Thought circles, although the New Thought tends to be a little bit more pragmatic. But um, we, we tend to jump to conclusions. And sometimes it's based on our channel, channeling or, or what we were getting from the other side, when in fact that's not completely true. So we we tend to take whatever comes to us without question. And um, I'm one of those people that say questions are are valid. We need to ask questions and we need to uh, look at the after effects. You know, even in the Bible it says, by their fruits you shall know them. This idea of after effects. What do you like afterward? Um what are you doing because of what happened to you? How did that influence you? What kind of changes are you making? Yeah, I've um, come across a lot of information lately, too, that all of a sudden I'm like, well, I never thought of it this way. And we try to judge too many people, and we don't see the big picture of everything. No, we don't. You, you you just take some great truth or, or some great channeling or some great guidance and you run with it. Well, that's good in a way. Um, that's, that's what guidance is for, is to help you, um, to benefit you. But you still kind of need to kind of back up a little bit and, and um, view it a, a little bit more carefully whenever it's appropriate. Remember that magic word, appropriate. You know, the Russians have a wonderful proverb. It's just wonderful. I love it. I love it. I love it. Um, and that, and that. Uh, let's see, how did that proverb go? Um, it just seemed to have flown by. Um, it, it's very similar to the old Chinese one that says, uh, after enlightenment, the laundry. You know, it, it's, it, 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 there's a need for that next step. And um, there's a lot of different um, 
of our leaders and visionaries in the past that have given us these proverbs and axioms and um, wonderful phrases that help us to keep things balanced. And I tell um, I tell a lot of my listeners too when I when I'm doing even when I do a reading for anybody, you know, I tell them it's like you know always question. Oh yeah. You know, and if they go to somebody and they get offended because they're asking questions, then I tell them that you don't need to get a reading from. No, oh, absolutely not. Walk out the door. Yep. And walk out um, the door. You know, and then I've also learned too that there is no such thing really as a good as a bad reader or a bad reading, because we don't we can only see so far into the future. And things are changing so quickly right now that even well, what it's what we understand, if we think it's a bad reader, it's like, who are we to say, though? Because we're judging someone. Well, that's kind of true, but it's also kind of not true. And where where it falls into being kind of not true is when that other person is being very judgmental and very demanding and trying to push something down your throat. And I really feel that is, that's unethical. Yeah, yeah. There's there's some guidelines on there where it's you know it's um, bordering on um, being unethical, especially if they know it's like oh I'm a cold reader and I can make people believe me. That's being unethical. But if someone's having say somebody like a psychic or someone's having an off night, which happens, and mm-hmm. people are like oh my God they're they're really bad. Well, maybe not. We don't. We can't see what's going uh, to happen with that information that that person's getting. Well, that's true. I think it would also be helpful for that individual because they will know if if the energy is a little screwy. Um, I know I do. I, I I get the feeling in my teeth. My teeth and my jaw will begin to hurt, and I and I'll tell the people, you know. Uh, uh, I'm sorry, I can't go on any longer. Um, I, I'm, I'm, you know, I either don't have a good connection or things yeah. just aren't quite right. And um, I'm sorry, but I won't take your money. Uh, I won't go any further. Uh, this just isn't right, and I'm ending it now. Yeah, I've done the same thing, and uh, some people have gotten mad at me because I tell people that. And it's like, but why? I mean, we have to be honest with people. Oh, absolutely, and just give them, give them their money back. Yeah, you know, and, give... you know, if they question, and you know, they let them question. Yeah, well, that's good. It's, you know, it's certainly something I've gotten used to as a researcher is, is question and debate, and maybe sometimes researchers carry that a little bit too far. Um, but I think it's healthy. Yeah, I've, I, and I learned, um, I got, actually got in trouble for debating too much in college. <laughs> it, was, um, it was an English class, and we had, it was English uh, lit, and we had to do our own interpretations of things, and the teacher was like, well, that's wrong. I'm like, well, that's my interpretation. And she's like, but it's not the right one. So it got me in a little bit of trouble because I was trying to get my point across, and, and I ended up with an A in a class anyways, but... Well, it was good training for you. Yes. It was good training for you, and it's good training for anybody. Um, We need to learn how to accept, and we also need to learn how to reject. The no is just as valid as the yes. And uh, so we get back to that wonderful word called appropriate. What is appropriate? It's not a matter, is it good or is it bad, is it right or is it wrong, Rather, 
uh, is it appropriate? It is, is it appropriate at, at this moment in time for my highest good and the highest good of all concerned? If it's not, you know, there's there's the door. Yeah, you know, get out of there. Okay. Well, we've only got a f- uh, few more minutes left. What? Um, how are things changing with uh, the type of research going on now? Well, I think I've already said that. Um, let me add to that that there is another project ongoing, huge one. It's called the AWARE Project. Um, A-W-A-R-E, big initials, stands for Awareness During Resuscitation. It is worldwide. There are 25 medical centers involved, uh, 1,500 patients. It's a three-year follow-up study. It's a clinical prospective study. And um, when we get the word from that, then we'll know a lot more. Um, Some of the experiments that they're running as part of the AWARE project, I do not believe will accomplish anything. And some of the things they're going for, uh, I think they're going to be very disappointed in what they find out uh, because they're being a little bit too clinical and not um, not really good researchers uh, because the near-death experience is an emotional experience. It's going to involve the limbic system and it's emotions. It's based on emotions. And if you can't make way for that in your experimentations in the work that you're doing, then you're 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 missing the boat. And some of the things they're doing in the way of the experiments that they're running. Uh, make no room, leave no room for emotions at all, and I know that they're they're going to be in for disappointment because it just it just isn't going to work. But at least they're doing this, and what they are going to find out will be good. Um, it's uh, it's a very exciting time now in the field of near death research. We are finding out more and more and more. Of course, I'm working on my tenth and last book on my near death research. And I'm finally giving myself permission to say what I could never say before or felt that I could never say before. I'm doing it this time. And I think people are going to be very surprised when the book comes out. And, uh, well, I'm looking forward to reading that one. When it comes out. <laughs> well, now, are, they, I, I, are they the ones that are doing the research? Because um, I heard someplace that um, somebody's doing research where they have a picture drawn on like operator, operating room floors that's only visible if you're up at the ceiling. Uh, there's some of that going on now, too. And also, uh, there's a number of them that are doing that. Also, uh, having a picture on the top part of these large uh, light fixtures in the operating rooms. So that, you know, you can't see it from regular viewpoint. You'd have to be up on the ceiling looking down in order to see these pictures on the top of of light fixtures. Now, is that um, going on in certain places, or is it going it's on? It's going on in a number of hospitals. I couldn't tell you which ones, unfortunately, but it's going on in a lot of them. Um, you know, it would be very helpful for your listeners to know that there are now 100 medical colleges teaching classes on the near-death experience, And um, Mayo Clinic College of Medicine requires all first-year students to take a class 
on the near-death experience. So that, a lot has changed since you first started it doing has. research. It has. It has changed radically, and it's continuing to. We're getting into areas of research we never dreamed we would get involved in. And uh, what we're finding out is just stunning. That's going to be interesting when, um, because we're getting to the point where we're proving that life continues and exists after this. Well, there's going to be a number of books come out next year. Some of them have just come out already. Uh, But next year, I believe it is in January, that's when Jeffrey Long's book comes out. Uh, something about evidence of a of a of an afterlife. Some of the things in his book um, are really true, and some of them are subject to question. But he's coming out. He's an MD, and there's a number of them coming out next year with afterlife kind of books. I'm gonna have to start doing a lot more research on this because it's piqued my curiosity now. <laughs> I mean, I know the stuff I've, you know, I understand and I've, you know, had messages from being a psychic and a medium and and, um, some of the other tools that I use also. But to actually get other people interested in it and seeing what information they're getting is confirming what I've already known. Yeah. Well, that's what you want. You want verification. Yes. So I'm getting, you know, the same experiences and the same information from different sources. It's like, oh, wait a minute, I already knew this too. It's like, that is so cool. (laughs) <laughs> it confirms it all, and which is nice. Yeah, yeah, you, you really need to have that. It's not enough that you get it as a psychic or a medium. You really need to go that extra step. Well, I want to thank you so much for being with me both nights this week. Well, thank you for the opportunity. It's been a lot of fun. Yes, and a lot of my uh, listeners and there have been emailing me and all, and um even from Tuesday night and wanting to know more so I keep telling them to go to your website and get a hold of you for any other information oh sure get the big the book of yeah the big book of near death experience. that's what I tell everyone I said yeah when it says the big book it's like it's the big book <laughs> it, it is, is a big book <laughs> yeah when I got this I was like oh my god how am I going to read this in one day but <laughs> I've been, been doing pretty good in getting getting reading it so I'm going to finish reading it and then I'm going to share it with some other people too and, and oh uh, good let them uh, understand what uh, near-death experiences are all about. Oh, yeah. Well, what we are all about yes. as human beings. That's what the near-death experience is revealing, is what we are all about as a human being. Well, I'm going to have to look to see when your next book comes out and then have you on as a guest then. We can talk about that one also. Okay. Okay, well, thank you so much for uh, for being my guest this week, and I look forward to hearing more from you. Thank you, and Merry Christmas, everybody, and Happy New Year's. Merry Christmas, and Happy New Year. Okay, bye-bye. Bye-bye. Yes, everyone, that was, yes, she's she's a wonderful person. Um, So go check out her website, pmhatwater.com. All her books are there, and, and a lot of other information about her where you can see her and all that. So uh, I just want to thank everyone. We'll see you tonight's Thursday, so I'll see you Monday night. But I'll see you someplace online. So don't forget, if you like the shows, <laughs> mark me as a favorite, add me as a friend. You know, uh, if you missed Tuesday night's show, tune in. You know, listen to it on the archives because I had her here Tuesday night talking about death and dying and what lies beyond. 
So until Monday night, everybody, have fun, play safe, don't name any, anything after me, and be careful with your traveling and your festivities and all, because I want to see you here Monday night. So until then, everybody, have fun, and God bless. Love and light to each and all of you.